0: Response. asked me if I would sit in on the last meeting of his seminar on December 12th, on a Friday. And I said, be happy to. And that created in my mind the illusion that that was the last week of class. It suddenly has dawned on me that uh, that is not the last week of class, but that class ends the week before. So if I am correct, there are two more lectures. After today? Yeah. No. December 3 is the last Three. Today and 2 next week. Because the 8th is a Monday and that's the last day of class, but oh, we, don't meet, we don't meet on Monday. We, we don't meet on Monday. Uh, You can come on Thursday if you like, but I won't be here. And and, uh, forgot about that uh, so, isn't it, isn't it interesting how <laughs> quickly things come to an end, and isn't it interesting that I still am rather far away from this happened period? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I'm I'm going to have to change my pace just slightly. Uh, But uh, what I want to do today is to uh, deal with the political side of the Seljuk period up to the Uh, up to the Mongol conquest uh, which begins in uh, 1218 1220 and then in a more devastating way uh, comes back in the 1250s uh, leaving the Mongols in control of Iran until uh, at least nominally until 1335 Uh, I say I want to deal with the political side of it because I've already talked about the economic infrastructural side of it. I've talked about the institutional side having to do with the uh, Iranian diaspora, the spread of institutions outside Iran, uh, the uh, the adjustments that were made to the economic downturn and so forth. On the political side, uh, the the place to start really is the the concept of the Sultan. Um, uh, the word sultan is an Arabic word that means power in the first occurrences of this word in a political context uh, dating back to the ninth century it refers to the to the temporal power of the caliph, so that a sultan uh, is, or rather, a caliph is someone who has uh, sultana, who has temporal power, and he also has, of course, uh, hilafah. That's his capacity as being a caliph. Uh, the way the word khilafa was used. I mean, today, uh, modern historians will talk about the caliphate as a geographical uh, empire. They'll talk about the caliphate as a state. They'll talk about the caliphate as an institution. The way "khilafa" is used in uh, in sources uh, of the uh, 12th century, 13th, 14th century, uh, it appears to be more a um, a quality. That is, say, you'll have people talk about so-and-so uh, holds the caliphate or he passes the the uh, the khilafa on or he uh, designates someone for the khilafah. Um, it's entirely possible that, that these are uh, minor uh, distinctions, except that the, the word that comes to be the modern... Uh, Arabic word for state, daula, uh, never appears as being synonymous with khilafa. So it doesn't appear that the caliphate is a state. And once the concept of the of the temporal, worldly power of the caliph, is separated from the uh, from the concept of khilafa, his being a caliph, then it becomes fairly apparent that there is something about Uh, Khilafah that is more abstract uh, less uh, tied to some sort of empirical situation um, and something closer to being a religious authority uh, in an abstract sense when you read chronicles from the the late 1100s uh, early 1200s when you have Caliphs described. Uh, they ap- they appear to be more like pa- more like popes. They receive ambassadors. They go in processions to the mosque. They do uh, a variety of things. They use the symbols of the of the caliphate. They wear the cloak of the prophet Muhammad, or they wield the sword of uh, Muhammad, or some other early worthy. <coughs> but they don't rule. So, the the separation of the caliph from uh, from uh, temporal rule is an important event. Uh, in the early 900s, uh, there was a uh, uh, an effort, uh, say in the 930s, to make such a separation. Only they did not use the word sultan. Um, uh, they uh, looked for and tried experimentally to appoint someone who was the commander of commanders, the al Umarach. This would be like the Qadil Qadat, would be the Qadi of Qadis, the chief Qadi. Uh, the uh, al Umarat would be the chief uh, commander. And there were two or three people in the 930s who were appointed, usually for a brief period of time, to this office and it wasn't very successful. It isn't until after the Buyid uh, Shiite uh, uh, family from Iran take over after 945 that you occasionally have the word Sultan appear but the Buyids are more interested in resurrecting the pre-Islamic term Shahan Shah than they are in, uh, in using a new Arabic term. So they're, they're playing a sort of a Persian card when they use the word Shahanshah, uh, not consistently, but from time to time. At the very end of the uh, 900s, uh, the people who come to rule in the, uh, in the northeast of Iran Uh, Mahmoud of Ghazna and his family the Ghaznavids they occasionally use the title sultan Uh, but the um, uh, the more important uh, titles that they use in addition to simply being commander uh, in the northeast are honorary titles that they uh, buy or extract from the caliph in far distant Baghdad. Uh, Saifuddin, in particular, I mean the Sword of the Faith. Uh, and Mahmud of Ghazna issues coins that have a little picture of a sword on them. They're called Saifi uh, dirhams because they have a picture of the sword that he's permitted to use after he gets this title, Sword of the of the Faith. So it is something that is not unique about the Seljuks. But it is certainly um, distinctive uh, when they adopt the word sultan uh, from the very um, outset of their rule. Uh, we're talking here, 1037, uh, in uh, the northeast of Iran, in uh, in Horasan, uh, uh, back, uh and east of him in. Afghanistan and Central Asia, his brother Chakri Beg, uh, they issue coins. And on the coin, you have uh, three indicators of, of political um, uh, status. Well, actually, you have four, because you have the name of the caliph. All coins will contain the name of the caliph, unless they're in, a, in rebellion, which the subjects were not. Uh, so, the coins say Shahanshah, Shah, uh, King of Kings, a Persian word uh, coming from a Persian tradition. Uh, and yet uh, these are a Turkish dynasty of uh, the leading family of the Ova's tribes that have migrated into Iran in the early 10 hundreds. Uh, as you uh, move, let's say, to the end of the 10 hundreds, uh, you'll find some members of the family of Seljuk are beginning to take names of people who appear in the Shahnameh. Uh So you have a, um, a later Seljuk, not of the main family, but of a Clatter family, whose name is Turan Shah. Uh, and uh, Turan in the Shahnameh is the, uh, the, lands of Central Asia, the lands of the East against whom Iran is pitted, and then you have another uh, character named Iran Shah, uh, and so forth. So you begin to see terminology coming out of the Persian political tradition that uh, that was uh, resurrected and given a uh, dramatic and impressive form in the Shah Naameh. You begin to see that being adopted uh, by the Turks. In addition to Shah Henshaw and, and his coins, um, uh, Joe has the term uh, Sultan al-Lazim, uh, meaning the uh, the grand or the uh, the sultan made grand. Uh, it's not just the word sultan. And it almost implies that you have uh, a um, situation where you might have had lesser people using the word, but this is to show that this is the chief sultan. But uh, this is a word meaning power. There are some uh, historians who have argued that the use of this term could only be uh, justified by a special permission from the caliph uh, that's never been exactly proven but uh, but it's likely in other words that the soul that the caliph now is in a position not simply in his uh, not simply to issue an honorary title but actually to allow someone to use uh, the, the word uh, denoting his his temporal power but it's not general because it's only temporal power in the east he's still the caliph In Baghdad, though he is under the control of the Buyid Emirs, who are ruling there. then the third thing that Tugrobek has on his coins is a um, a little picture. Uh, This is a picture that is interpreted as being a bow and arrow, and it probably is. It appears on all of the gold dinars of Tughrobek, does not appear on any of the gold dinars of his brother Tughrobek, who was sort of his co-ruler for the eastern territories that they controlled, while Tughro controlled northeastern Iran and places farther west. Uh, So this gets interpreted as being a personal sign of Tughrobek that would not have had any particular meaning to either Arabs or Persians but would have conveyed meaning to the Turks, uh, people in the army, because they would have uh, recognized that in um, in Central Asian Turkic tradition, uh, you had something called a tamga, uh, which is more or less synonymous with a a uh, And these words refer to a a personal sign of power. Uh, Tamga uh, gets used more later on in the Mongol domains and Tughra comes to be used uh, primarily in Turkish domains but it's the same it's the same thing that you have a a symbol uh, rather than a word uh, a uh, the bow and arrow are uh, very common uh, in uh in, in designating, in, in, in symbolizing this sort of thing, if, if this is a bow and arrow. Sometimes you'll see it with two arrows, of course that could be a mace it doesn't actually look like an arrow uh, but we'll go with the to s- determination that this is a bow and arrow. At a later point, let us say by the um, by the, the uh, um, certainly by the 1300s but even in the uh, like 1200s, uh, you begin to see um, the bow becoming like that and then the arrow like that and then you have the name of the sultan that is down here. You might have <laughs> two things to the bow and this becomes the, the origin of what is the most significant symbol for the Ottoman Sultans. It's considered their signature. Each Ottoman Sultan from 1300 or so onward down to the 1920s has a signature uh, and it's called a Tugra and you have an office of government where people draw this on documents to make sure it's always the same and each one is different and uh, you can learn how to to read these. Uh, They're and that is the way you date a lot of things, buildings and documents and so forth in Ottoman history, is that the tulgrar will tell you whose who's reign it what it was, uh, and the Tughra shows up on the coins. So the idea of a personal sign uh, emerges uh, with the Turks. There is no uh, well, there is a, a something of a corollary to this in that each sultan also had a turban. That was distinctive. Uh, that may have roots in the um, pre-Islamic Iranian tradition, where every king has a separate uh, has a crown that is distinctive for the king. When you look at Sassanid coins in Iran, uh, you you know who the Shah is, uh, not because of a date, because they don't have dates. Uh, but because of the crown that shows up in the coin. Uh, so the, the idea that the headdress is individual, that the personal sign is individual, this is a, uh, something that you might have some precursor in the Iranian tradition. You don't have anything in the Arab tradition. There's nothing uh, proper to the caliphate that would distinguish uh, visually and symbolically an individ- one individual caliph uh, from another. So not only does the, this sort of uh, three, uh, you know, uh, three-way three indication of rule on the coins of Tughral, not only does it uh, seem to respond on the one hand to the Iranians with Shah and Shah, on the other hand to Arabs or Muslims with the notion of Sultan Sultanulism, but specifically to Turks with the Tughra uh, not only is this a indicator of uh, of power, uh, but it is suggestive of a um, uh, the emergence of a personalization of rule that is hard to find in the uh, in the period of the Umayyad or the Abbasid Caliphates, or even uh, with the Uh, to some degree with the Iranian uh, dynasties that became common uh, throughout much of the 900s. This personalization uh, progresses with time and is certainly enhanced uh, by the Mongol invasion, which creates a new sort of mythic or quasi-mythic personal uh, stamp uh, namely the the life of Genghis Khan so Genghis Khan will ultimately become a Alexander the great type figure in terms of the the great weight that his individual life uh, has so one of the things that that you begin to have emerging is the notion of a more personalized rule and yet it's hard to to find much about the Seljuk dynasty that uh, that spins this out in in much detail. For one thing, we still do not have any um, any book about the history of the Seljuk dynasty in Iran, despite the fact that it was uh, an enormously important chapter in Iranian history. Uh, so Togluobek uh, rules until 1063. He starts in 1037 in the Northeast. 1050 he takes over in Baghdad. Uh, the Buyid um, emirs uh, are overthrown. So now the caliph in Baghdad has a Sunni um, overlord instead of a Shiite overlord, and it makes no difference whatsoever. Uh, the caliphs still are more or less uh, under palace arrest. They, they don't have any power. They don't uh, do much of anything. Um, but they have khilafah. They still have, uh, they have increasingly the notion that being caliph has a religious uh, uh, quality. So the Seljuk sultans seek the uh, the approval of the caliph. And indeed, Tukrobek, um married the daughter of a caliph and had a son and had the hope that his son would uh, would succeed him, thereby linking the Abbasid caliphate uh, to the new Turkish uh, power uh, in the area. Uh, he had a. This was to be carried out by his vizier. Uh, a rather, uh yeah. So, was the, where was the real authority concentrated? The real authority is in the hands of, of the of the of, the of, of Bek. Okay, so he's the invader, the conqueror, he's and the, yet he still seeks the approval of the local of the caliph. caliph? hmm He seeks the approval of local caliph, and he also seeks the approval of local uh, political uh, constellations in the various cities. Um, yeah. Uh, it's 1037 in Khorasan, northeastern Iran and Tulgaril dies in 1063. Uh, his vizier, Amin bokul uh tried to engineer the succession for his son uh, which had it succeeded would have led to a very interesting situation of the uh, Arab uh, Abbasid Caliphate uh, uh, producing a um, a son who then becomes a sultan. And it's hard to quite conjecture what that might have amounted to. Amido Kundari himself was an Iranian, uh, as were virtually all of the senior administrators of the Seljuks. Yeah. So it is this son who becomes the first no. sultan? or Togrul is a sultan. He tries to pass it on to his son, who is also the, uh, the grandson of the caliph. And he fails. Uh, Amina Mokul Kundari would have presumably stayed on and become the power behind the throne uh, if you had had a child take over the sultanate. Uh, he was an Iranian. Uh, and he's a curious Iranian uh, dignitary because. He's a nobody. Uh, He comes from the town of Kundur, which is in northeastern Iran. And we have some information about how he came to be the vizier. There is a report preserved that claims to be the, uh, the intelligence report written by um, more or less, a Ghaznavid spy, uh, telling the Ghaznavid uh, ruler who had been defeated uh, what was happening in Nishapur, which was the uh, the capital in the northeast. And he said that the that when Tulgarbek came, uh, he assembled the religious dignitaries, the the uh, Qadis and judges and um, uh, you know, Reis and, and so forth. And he said, look, I don't know how to rule a country because I'm not one of you sophisticated Persians. I'm just a simple Turk and therefore I need somebody. I want. I don't want to change anything. Uh, this is not someone who goes in and uh, lays sieges to cities and destroys them and kills everybody. He says, I just want to, um, to fit in and I need somebody to run the empire for me I don't believe that this is a true account but it is the one thing that shows up in a chronicle he had two people are reported to have briefly uh, come forward as the um, as a vizier very briefly and then suddenly it was in the hands of this man named Al-Kundari Al-Kundari is one of the rare examples of someone who is a religious scholar and who normally would have spent his entire career, uh, you know, in religious studies, who emerges at the top of the uh, of the empire. The person who puts his name forward and who recommends him, who gets the job for him, is the leader of the. Uh, the faction in Nishapur, that's the Shafi, uh, Usheri, Sufi faction. Uh, because it's very clear that the more conservative faction, the Hanafi faction, still supported the Khaznovids. And it was the um, the Shafi, Usheri faction that supported uh, supported uh, Tughrobek. So this man, his name is Imam al uh was he had El kundri as a protege, and he says to back here is the guy who can run the empire for you. Um, this broke El kundris heart. He had anticipated, it seems, becoming a great scholar in Nishapur and becoming head of the faction. And instead, now the head of the faction that he wanted to lead himself has told him he has to become Uh, the vizier of this uh, Turkish uh, tribal uh, commander. Uh, The reason for it appears to be that um, Imam Muwafak had his own son who was only slightly younger than Al-Kundari and wanted to pass the leadership on to him. And Al-Kundari was a star, but he was an inconvenient star and he wanted to get rid of him. This may explain why, very shortly after he became the vizier, Al-Kundari uh, persuaded Togrobek to launch a, uh, a persecution of the Shafi usheri faction. Uh, he turned against the people whom he had been uh, studying with for uh, 20 years. And um, the major figures of that faction are marked for arrest, and uh, we have stories about how, you know, four of the most important people are arrested, and then another one escapes and goes to his country estates and gets a band of armed men and goes in and stages a jailbreak, and they all uh, ride off uh, into exile. Uh, So it's a very tumultuous uh, time in which the the, the tumult is largely focused on these factions. And you really don't know what Togaril might be might be thinking about all this. Uh, now, when I, it's, it's hard to, to get at the core of this because while Amido milk, Amido book is his title. Paul Kundari is the guy who is running the administration of the empire that is expanding constantly as Togaril conquers Western Iran, conquers Baghdad, uh, and really creates for the first time uh, you know since the early Abbasid times a unified state through all of Iran. El uh, kundari is carrying on this uh, this factional um, this factional campaign as well. Also, at one point, the exact year is a little uncertain. Uh, Toil apparently wanted to arrange, or had arranged for a marriage with some princess from some place and sent Al Kundari, maybe, to uh, to fetch her back to Baghdad so he could marry her. And then maybe Al Kundari had sex with her. Um, that's one of the stories. But in any case, for whatever reason, when he got back to Baghdad, took Tughrobek. Uh, called him in and said, well, you cannot continue as the vizier of my empire unless you castrate yourself, uh, which al kundari proceeded to do. Um, I, I mean, Bush and Rumsfeld come to mind that, you know, you screwed up the war, but if you castrate yourself, you can continue to be Secretary of Defense, otherwise you have to leave. I mean, that that's it how would we interpret something like this? Here's a guy who who castrates himself and remains the chief administrator of the empire. Uh, The story gets told or adverted to in later literature again and again, so that in the Safavid period uh, in the 1600s, it happens again. Another vizier suddenly castrates himself, copycat. Um, Whether either of these things ever occurred is unclear supposedly ultimately Al-Kundari had his body buried in one place, his head buried in another place and his testicles buried somewhere else there was an Arab poet who wrote a, a great poem in praise saying that Al-Kundari was so manly that uh, that he cut out the only part of his body that was female, namely his testicles Now, why is that female? Because the the word baid in Arabic is feminine. uh, And that's the word for testicle, a stupid poem. (laughs) Um, And yet it becomes celebrated as sort of one of the emblematic things that's known about al-Kundabi. So this is is the key person, and yet there is so much about him that borders on outright fiction as to make it um, improbable that some of these things occurred. In any case, when Togaril died, El Kundari was um, uh, in charge of of the interim, uh, tried to secure the succession for his son, and he failed. Uh, and the person that he failed because Togaril brother had a son who was already uh, grown, whose name was Alp Arslan, uh, Turkish uh, name meaning uh, Hero Lion. Uh, he's a son of, you know, of Chagri Beg. Uh, beg in this uh, later on, Bey in Turkish B E Y means commander. It's like Emir in in Arabic. Uh, so Chagri uh, had died 10 years before Tughrul and um, had been succeeded in the east by his son Al-Parslan. Al-Parslan now uh, overthrows the uh, the, um, uh, the effort by Al-Kundari to install Tughrul's son and the second Sultan of the Seljuk family becomes Al-Parslan. Now Al-Parslan uh, has a, an Iranian vizier who runs the empire for him and uh, this is uh, probably the most, the best known figure uh, of the 11th century he's known by his uh, by his title Nizamo Nizam Nizamul Bolk uh, like El Kundari was from northeastern Iran. He was a, a Persian. Uh, he came. His father was a, uh, an administrator, under the Ghaznavids. Uh, unlike El Kundari, whose father appears to have been maybe little more than a wealthy farmer. Nizam had become the the vizier of Alparslan in the territories that Alparslan inherited from his father after Chaudhary's death. Uh, so he was already experienced in how to run things. And in the, the showdown between uh, Nizamomulk and Amidomulk, Nizamomolk wins, imprisons Amidomulk, who then is killed in prison and as I say, his body and a head buried in separate places. And clearly his testicles have been buried long before somewhere else. Uh, Nizamomolk uh, is known for his very strong partisanship and involvement in the factional religious struggles of the time. Mulk, who had begun as a member of the Shafi faction and then turned against it and instituted a, um, a persecution uh, against the Shafis, uh, Mulk becomes, restores the Shafis to all of their uh, all of their eminence and he he builds a series of institutions patterned on medrases uh, that have been built by not just by Tugrobek before him but also by the uh, by the Ghaznavid uh, sultans in the east uh, and these madrasas are all called Uh, you'll often find it stated that uh, Nizamul Mulk was the man who originated the metrices, and he did not, but he greatly expanded the uh, the institution, uh, which was well known in the northeast uh, before him, and appears to have. Uh, Endowed these individual Nizamiyas uh, with sufficient funds to not only pay the professor and pay for the building, but to give um, uh, stipends to all the students. So the buildings become residential colleges, whereas before they probably were not residential. It's it's unclear. We don't have any surviving uh, example of what a um, a pre-nizamia metrisa was like. Uh, but this um, he's not the only person to create medrases. Uh, there are medrases created for other uh, <coughs> factions as well, but his medrases are the most important, uh, particularly in Baghdad. Uh, and uh, they're created as private endowments. And uh, I mentioned before that when you <coughs> when you uh, create an institution for the public good, uh, you establish a waqf, uh, which is a uh, a, a revenue producing piece of property, usually um, a uh, shop or uh, something like that. But it also can be agricultural land. Uh, and then the revenues from the waqf are used to support uh, the particular institution. So Nidat Nizamomolk created these institutions and then endowed them, but he did so in a private capacity. In other words, these do not become schools of the Seljuk Empire. They become things that are associated with him personally. Uh, And this this continues for a long time to be the tradition with medrasas, that they are private endowments, privately endowed colleges rather than things endowed by the state or by the dynasty, even though members of the dynasty are sometimes the people who donate the money to finance a medrase. Um, it, at one time it was argued that ul Mulk created these schools in order to train uh, bureaucrats to run the empire uh, but that is not true. Uh, that came from a misreading of a manuscript uh, so far as I can tell the people who who graduated from these medrases uh, were primarily religious scholars as they had been before and as they uh, would be uh, for most medrases in later times and the administrators continued to come from families that have had a background in administration, and largely trained through apprenticeship within the uh, within the government, so that you uh, you rarely have a um, uh, a vizier or other high administrative official who has much uh, standing in in religious terms. Nevertheless, this is all happening at a time of deepening economic distress. So what the Nizamiyas did uh, and the other madrasas created at the same time was to create a very substantial uh, pool of patronage for religious scholars. Uh, and that seems to have been the, the most important part of what Nizamawolk did because by, by looking at a uh, unrest, uh, An unruly situation, where in city after city you had two factions pitted against each other, and uh, breaking out from time to time into riots and even worse uh, you know, violence. Uh, now, Nizam-ul-Mulk was in a position to um, to say, you know, if you are going to be have an appointment as a student or a professor in my madrasa, uh, you cannot riot, um, or you have to um, bend to the wishes of the uh, of the person who controls uh, the madrasa, and there are fewer and fewer. Well, there are more and more scholars who need endowed chairs. Uh, if you go back to the 900s, uh, these scholars um, had cotton fields, and they had their own money. Now, by the uh, late 1000s. Uh, 1100s, uh, the economy has gone down and the major scholars are eager to have positions in new endowed institutions. These institutions, uh, when they are built outside of Iran, uh, Syria, um, uh, Iraq, Anatolia, Egypt, eventually in Arabia, uh, more often than not the person who becomes the first professor, is a, is an Iranian in exile. So this is also a way of finding positions for the Sunni elite from Iran who were leaving the country during a period of economic decline. So Nizam mulk uh, uh, overshadows Al-Parslan. In modern historical records, in modern historical tellings of the tale, al Mulk seems to be this impressive um, genius administrator who uh, you know, who solved some of the problems of controlling the dissident factions, uh, whereas Alp Arslan was simply a military commander. However, Alp Arslan who lives until, uh, who r- rules until his death in 1072, in 1071, he wins a battle that proves to be one of the most important battles in the history of the Middle East. And that is the Battle of uh, Manzikert. Battle of Manzikert takes place in eastern Turkey and the uh, the tribal, the Ola's tribal army of Alparslan defeats the army of the Byzantine emperor, uh, Romanus Diogenes. Uh, the emperor Uh, the emperor's army promptly flees back to Constantinople at least the way it's usually portrayed and this leaves the entire uh, area of Anatolia what is today modern Turkey or at least the Asian part of Turkey uh, deprived of the protection of the imperial Byzantine army so that uh, from 1071 onward at least if not before you have uh, a growing number of uh, Turkish-speaking nomads who are moving into, uh, into Anatolia, an area that had resisted being absorbed into the Islamic territory for hundreds of years up to that time. Uh, my personal feeling is that the reason the Turks were able to uh, become very rapidly a very powerful force in Anatolia is because the same climatic uh, decline that struck Iran also hit Eastern Anatolia. Byzantine historians generally feel that in the 11th century, there was a population decline in the Byzantine Empire. uh, And it seems that during this period, uh, many important Armenians who were situated primarily in eastern Anatolia uh, migrate from eastern Anatolia to the southwest uh, uh, area of Turkey where it uh, borders Syria on the Mediterranean Sea, the uh, lowland area known as, uh, to the Greeks as uh, Cilicia, and today as, uh, as Chukurova. Uh, this becomes a, a new center for Armenian power so that you suddenly have an area called Little Armenia and an Armenian kingdom is created there that becomes an important factor in the, uh, in the period of Crusades. So the, the, the fact that you have a major battle and that the Turks win the battle is clearly important, just as it was clearly important that there was a major uh, battle between the Kazavids and the Seljuks, uh, the Battle of Dandan Khan in northeastern Iran, but there's a broader economic and, in this case, climatic context in which this is all occurring. So the um, the emergence of uh, of a new Muslim land or a new land under Muslim influence, uh, bordering Syria and Iraq, is an important. Uh, uh, new phenomenon that is associated with the uh, victory of Al-Parslan at the end of his reign Al-Parslan is succeeded by his son uh, uh, Malik Shah uh, a man of a curious name because he's king king a Malik in Arabic means king uh, Shah in Persian means king, so his name is King King, and he was the king. Uh, there's a character in Catch-22, you know, major, 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 who um, you know has the same sort of curious situation. Uh, Malik Shah uh, is usually portrayed as being uh, under the thumb of Nizam-ul-Mulk. Nizam-ul-Mulk had been the vizier uh, throughout Malik Shah's fathers. Um, reign both before and after he became the sultan uh, the death of Tukhulbeck and Malik Shah is the young man who um, who comes up uh, uh, under the aegis of this older and more experienced and very powerful administrator uh, in 1092 uh, um is assassinated Uh, his primary rival, uh, an administrator from the Hanafi faction, uh, was then assassinated, and then Malik Shah was assassinated. So in 1092, suddenly the the major figures uh, at the top of the Seljuk Empire uh, all disappear from the scene. And this brings up the issue of the assassins, because when I say assassinated... This is the first and most dramatic act supposedly carried on by a uh, Shiite uh, sect uh, known as the uh, known popularly as the Assassins, uh, but technically as the Nizari Ismailis. Uh, who are the Nizari Ismailis? there had been a Shiite uh, movement. Well, let me put it differently. You go back to the beginning of the Abbasid Caliphate, and the imam of the Shiites at that time was known as uh, Ja'far or uh, If you recall, I mentioned that the head of the uh, of the propaganda organization, uh, when the Abbasids came to power, had offered supposedly the, the, uh, the caliphate to three different members of the family of Ali, all of whom turned it down. The most circumspect of was Ja'far Asadik. He's the one who wouldn't even open the letter, supposedly, because he doesn't read mail from people he doesn't know. It's a very wise policy. So Ja'far Asadik uh, is the leader of the. Uh, the family of Ali. He's recognized as the Imam. Uh, in the books of hadith used by Shiites, uh, the hadith going back to Jafar Sadiq uh, really are uh, an enormous number and carry the, um, the same uh, legal uh, weight and implication that, uh, that Jafar. Uh, that that uh, Muhammad's hadith would have for the Sunnis, and this is one reason why the the, the Shiite legal school is often referred to as the Ja'fari school uh, because it goes back to Ja'far Sadiq. Okay, Ja'far Sadiq had uh, the, the, the split occurs uh, at the time of his uh, of his death. The split is uh, is murky, uh, and I'm not going to try to elucidate any detail. The normal story is that Ja'far <coughs> had a son named Ismail, um, uh, and he had designated Ismail to be to be a successor as the Imam, but Ismail died before his father. And so the um, uh, another son, uh, Musa, Musa uh, al uh becomes the imam. So now brother Musa uh, uh, becomes the the imam for the uh, for the family of Ali. Okay, what makes it murky is that it is later reported or believed that there were people who who felt that the designation of Ismail as being the imam was, while it was announced by his father Jaffer, was in fact a divine designation. And that even though Ismail had succeeded, had died before Jaffer, nevertheless, he had been the imam. And therefore, the imamate should go to his son rather than to his uh, to his brother uh, Musa. Now, whether Ismail had a son is where it gets murky because we don't have uh, concrete documentation that there ever was a son. The people who claim descent from Ismail maintain that for reasons of protective coloration, uh, they went into hiding and they changed their names and they lived in secret uh, for, uh, for many years in, in Jordan. Uh, they introduced the changing of the names because the names of the descendants of Ismail are not consistent from source to source nor are any of them known concretely uh, to have existed. Uh, the people who followed Musa and the mainstream of the Shiites said all these people are imposters, that they were not the offspring of Ismail, but rather of a of an ambitious and opportunistic propagandist who uh, claimed that they were that his his own offspring were the offspring of Ismail. We have at least two sets of names for several generations, in which uh, one set is supposedly real names; another one are nom de guerre, are names adopted for propaganda purposes. And yet, nobody's quite sure which set is true, or whether the idea of a second set of real names has any validity in any event. In 909, a Dai, a propagandist, appears in northern Tunisia. Um, There he goes into the mountains, uh, which are occupied by indigenous North Africans who are not Arabic speakers, and he converts them into an army in support of a uh, possibly fictional man living in Jordan. How this happened, uh, it makes no sense at all. I mean, how did he even talk to these people? He himself was not a Berber. Uh, no evidence that he had studied to go there or anything. Yeah? So he, he goes to Tunisia, converts an army. He goes to the tribes in northern Tunisia, well, the tribes in northern Tunisia are the rivals of the tribes that are supporting the main government. So they go into rebellion against the main government. And somehow, this family from Jordan manages to take over the movement or to inaugurate the movement. It's not clear. Uh, a man comes from Jordan claiming to be uh, the, a descendant of Ismail. Uh, he gets lost. And he ends up in Algeria. He doesn't know where Tunisia is, apparently. Goes through Tunisia, goes to Algeria, gets captured, put in prison. And then his partisans from Tunisia have to go and rescue him. Uh, but he uh, he finally ends up in Tunisia with this Berber army supporting him. And he declares himself uh, to be uh, a new Shiite uh, ruler and um but takes the title of Al Moelis. Uh, that's 909. Uh, they, they are descendants of Ismail, so they are called by uh, historians Ismailis. However, they didn't call themselves Ismailis. Uh, they said, you know, we are descendants of Muhammad's daughter Fatima, who was, of course, the wife of Ali so they call themselves spotimates. Uh, the, the Shiites who had been loyal to Musa al and to the line of Amams descended from him, uh, which had become extinct by before 909, uh, or at least had gone into occlusion, uh, those Shiites don't call them Fatimids, uh, they call them uh, Botanies. Uh, now a Botany is someone who believes uh, supposedly in uh, secret internal knowledge. Botan is is, is belly, and it's the, the inside, as opposed to Zahir, which is the outside. So the Botanies are supposedly secret um, uh, conspirers, uh, and it was very definitely a, uh, a pejorative term. Uh, botany was uh, compare you know, was the equivalent of red or pinko in my uh, Cold War uh, growing up. Uh, and you had um, in the in the uh, late 900s you had witch-, witch hunts taking place throughout the Islamic realms to try and Find these Botany secret um, uh, propagandists. Uh, some of them were found and were killed. Other people were denounced for being Botanies, but were not Botanies, and they were killed too. So this is the, the the subversive movement of the time. Some of these Ismailis uh, were very very um, uh, important intellectuals. Uh, there's a, an encyclopedia that they produce in Iraq uh, which it's called an encyclopedia but it's not really an encyclopedia um, uh, it's a, uh, a collection of, of stories and treatises uh, that come from the brethren uh, the of purity Ikhwana Safa uh, and who these brethren were is a little unclear, but it's fairly clear that, that these botanies were, uh, were not simply a religious sect, but they were an intellectually different stream of thought, which probably had a number of different components, some of them certainly going back into uh, areas of uh, Hellenistic Greek thought. Uh, in 969, 60 years after the Fatimids took over in Tunisia, uh, they captured Egypt and there uh, they established a new uh, capital which they called Cairo. Uh, Cairo of uh, Cairo uh, is a palace quarter of grandiose scale built on the outskirts of the pre-existing uh, Most of the city that goes back to the time of the conquest of uh, Fustat. It's uh, Fustat is now the sort of southern reaches of the metropolis of Cairo and the um, the uh, old Cairo, the, uh, the the palace quarters, in the center of the old city. Uh, they take over in Cairo. They claim to be caliphs at this. By this time. Uh, And their intent is clearly to proceed eastward and conquer the Abbasids. So now you have a a caliphate based in Baghdad, that is Sunni, uh, but it's controlled by the Shi'ite Buyids. But the Shiite Buyids are are conventional Shiites, Imami Shiites, Twelver Shiites, rather than being Ismailis. Uh, the family of Ali is denouncing the Fatimids as imposters and writing treatises about how, the, how they're imposters. You have Sunni rulers everywhere are terrified that there is an underground subversive movement uh, being ordered, organized by the Bataniya. Um, every time the Fatimids <laughs> try to expand their power eastward to attack Iraq, they fail uh, because they are confronted by people known as Karmites. Uh, Karmites are a religious group. What religious group are they? They They're Ismailis. They're supposedly, they claim to be the same movement as the Fatimids and yet they are the ones who frustrate the expansion of the Fatimids by fighting against them. Not only that, the Karmatis are divided into different uh, factions, one of them in northeastern Arabia, which is probably the source of the uh, Shiites of eastern province that are still common in Arabia, in the eastern province of Arabia, Uh, and another group that is in Iraq and and Syria. Uh, Their quarrel is probably over who should be the head of the Ismaili family uh, rather than on a philosophical basis. In any case, uh, the failure of the Ismailis to get their act together and present a a united army is what uh, frustrates the movement and keeps them from overthrowing the caliphate in Iraq. Uh, In, uh, uh, what's the year? Uh, let me see. In 1021, uh, the Fatimid ruler in Cairo, uh, uh, his name is Al Hakim. Uh, he goes out for a evening ride on his mule uh, in the hills. Uh, just west of Cairo where the citadel now is, and he has never seen again. His clothes are found and his mule is found, but El Hakam is gone. Uh, 25 years later or so, a couple of guys are arrested for having murdered him and are executed. They, are, they confess and they're executed. However, by that time, the idea has spread that El Hakam wasn't killed, but rather El Hakam was God, <laughs> uh, and he had uh, returned to heaven, where he didn't need his mule or his clothes. <laughs> um, now El Hakam, uh, being God, um, in the eyes of these people, meant that worship of God in Him and through Him took priority over, uh, over the authority of the Fatimid um, Caliph because the, the, the Fatimid Caliph was a Caliph descended from who's an Imam, but Hakam himself was God. And he was a, a learned person. He did, he did eccentric things. One of my favorite is that he supposedly prohibited the selling of women's shoes because he thought women should not leave the house. If they had no shoes, they couldn't leave the house. Uh which is kind of silly, you can go barefoot. I don't know. Um at one point he just dist- he destroyed the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Yeah. So what's yeah. well, the distinctive ideology? Because they've been always under the suppression by the form Christians about because murder and kill and Well that's not these are Smailies. That's going to be another group of Israelis. Uh, The people who believe that Al Hakam was God were. uh, uh, The propagandist who becomes associated with that is named Adarzi, and the people, and the plural of that, is Druze. So, this is where the Druze population of Lebanon uh, comes from. Uh, this is one of several splits that you get within the Ismaili movement. Going to your question, uh, the Ismaili movement, uh, even though it's described as believing in a line of imams who descend from Ismail, in fact is subject to a whole series of of, uh, of splits, and those splits um, divide the community and often. They go to war with each other, so that the failure of the Fatimids to ever uh, turn themselves into a uh, into a massively successful political movement is related, seemingly, to a political or to a, a ideological um, propensity to to split under different leaders. At a certain point, I think it's in. Um, in the beginning of the 1070s, I just can't remember the exact date. It's under the second successor to El Hakim. Uh, you have know, a split between uh, Nizar and uh, Mostavi. So that uh, these are two brothers. Uh, uh, one group of the of people feel that Nizar should be the the imam. and Nizar dies, Mustali becomes the imam, the cal- uh, the caliph of the Fatimids. But you now have a group of people who are called Nizari Ismailis, because they are um, dedicated to the idea that Nizar uh, uh, should have been uh, the caliph. But they also uh, believe that Nizar. Um, Inaugurates a new uh, a new religious movement in the same way that followers of Al Hakam felt that as a manifestation of God on earth, Al Hakam inaugurated a new religious moment. The Zariyasbaniis are not very successful in Egypt where they originate, but they become very successful in Iran, and they're the assassins. Uh, they have a uh, a leader uh, named Hassan Sabah, and he becomes the spiritual and political uh, leader of the Ismailis in Iran. Uh, earlier Ismailis had been detected and and killed uh, and so on, but in the deteriorating um, economic climate uh, of the late 10 hundreds, the Ismailis are able to, the Nizari Ismailis are able to, uh, to become important uh, in some cities, particularly the city of Isfahan, but they also uh, capture and hold and fortify a number of rural places in particular, uh, in Northwest of Tehran high in the Alborz mountains uh, the fortress of Alamut. Western historians picked up the uh, the idea from exactly who started it is a little unclear. But the the idea was that a devotee of Hassan Sabah uh, would be brought to Alamut and led into a garden and uh, or doped up and then led into a garden and he was told this is paradise because paradise is a garden in Islam and you will return here after you have killed so and so and then they are sent forth to be assassins Um, the word assassin comes from hashash meaning someone who's a marijuana Uh, dealer and uh, in the plural in oblique case in Arabic uh, that means that they are hashashin, plural of hashash and since Italian merchants can't pronounce an initial H uh, they said oh these are assassino and this is where we get assassin coming into Italian and then into English it's a, uh, a popularization of a pejorative term used by the enemies of the Nizari Ismailis. Uh, but the Europeans kind of glommed onto the term um, and uh, turned it into something they thought was, um, was realistic. And right down to the 1960s, uh, the story held up pretty well because people somehow believed that if you smoked a lot of grass, uh, you then would go out and assassinate someone. These are people who had never smoked a lot of grass. Um, You know, it wasn't that you smoke a lot of grass and then you have brownies or (laughs) eat something else, or that you drift off to sleep or you listen to music or uh, you do something like that. None of those things, but rather, I want to kill someone. (laughs) Well, by the late 1960s, everybody knew that this didn't happen, (laughs) that reefer madness was a uh, preposterous fantasy, and that uh, the whole story of the assassins was utter nonsense. Uh, Probably the word hashashin was used to indicate Uh, a derogatory social status rather than a particular addiction to smoking marijuana. Uh, But in any case uh, they did carry out strategic killings. So in books on the history of terrorism uh, they play now a very large chapter because they are strategic terrorists in the sense that terrorist groups are conceptualized as Political, as determined, ideological-driven political groups that believe that that the destabilization of government that comes with strategically uh, uh, planned assassinations or uh, or uh, violent events will cause such destabilization that a determined sect can take over and become the new government. That that that's for this theory of terrorism. Um, So Nizam al-Mulk becomes their first high-profile victim in 1092. A number of people have written um, books and articles on this, arguing that actually Malik Shah had Nizam al-Mulk assassinated, um, but blamed it on the assassins. Because one of the things that happens is that once you have assassins or al-Qaeda, you can blame everything on them. And so we have a whole lot of people supposedly assassinated by assassins, these sort of dopers who are wandering around looking for someone to stab. And we don't know whether any of them were actually assassinated by assassins or by Nizari Ismailis. But it leads to an image of the Nizari Ismailis as a violent terrorist group, an image that has nothing to do with their actual ideology, which sort of says there is a new, uh, a new dispensation for Islam that is beginning Uh, with this group Uh, and ultimately this leads to uh, in the 1250s to the assassins being a major target for the Mongols in their second invasion of Iran Uh, and all the assassins are killed. Uh, Everywhere the Mongols can find an assassin or someone they think might be an assassin or someone who knows an assassin they simply kill them so that the assassins supposedly disappear. Until the 18th century, when it turns out that some of them had survived. Only now they're no longer a terrorist group, now they are called the Ari Ismailis, and they uh, emerge in Iran and then uh, more importantly in India uh, under the leadership of an imam who claims descent through Ismail, and that is the Aga Khan. So that today, the followers of the Aga Khan are the contemporary survivors of this Nizari Ismaili movement. And the Khan is not known to be a terrorist. Rather, he's one of the world's great philanthropists. And it turns out that there are some areas where there are enormous numbers of Ismailis. Tajikistan has a huge Ismaili population. And East Africa has a large Ismaili population, immigrants from, from India. But there are very few Ismailis left uh, in Iran itself. Yeah? What? Uh, the story of their reemergence is one that I have read many times and is not stuck in my memory. I know that in India, uh, they get uh, promoted by the British as a collaborative uh, 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 group, yeah. So these mainly community that we have in New York in Jacksonville mm-hmm. are the followers of Nizar uh, because they all have the is- a picture of this imam. The Ismailis uh, in New York or anywhere else now are mostly um, uh, descended from the people who believed in Nizar. Now, there is a small surviving group of Mostali Ismailis, um, but it's a, a minor group. Most of the Ismailis today are uh, Nizari Ismailis. Uh, from the point of view of the Seljuks, where I started, uh, the Ismailis are a political annoyance uh, because of, their, of the assassinations that they either did or did not uh, carry out. Uh, but in any case, after the assassination of Malik Shah, uh, members of the family start to fight one another. And the power of the Seljuks quickly erodes uh, so that the, uh, the last uh, powerful Seljuk is named Sanjar and he rules from 1118 to 1157. But really um, 1092 is is sort of the turning point for for the great Seljuk dynasty. They never, even under Sanjar, they never regained the power that they'd had under the first three, uh, Todorovbek, Alp Arslan, and, and Malik Shah. Uh, Iran is becoming an increasingly depressed area uh, during this time because now you have the warfare between members of the family being added to the economic decline that had begun in the beginning of the 100s. Uh And um, as this drama is going forward in the East, which really results in kind of uh, Iran and Iraq becoming devastated Areas, uh, you have the arrival of the first crusaders uh, in the Holy Land. Uh, The first crusade is 1098. So the narrative, when people teach Islamic history, they tend to make a sudden jump cut from the story of the Seljuks, which is nice and neatly narrated up through Malik Shah or through Sanjar, And then they switch and they talk about the history of the Crusades. But this isn't the history of Islam. This is the history of Iran. So I'm not going to talk about the Crusades. Uh, But rather, when we get together again, I'm talking about what happened in this uh, bleak and rather devastated uh, late Seljuk uh, land um, in the early 1200s when the Mongols come and uh, begin to uh, to build an empire. I almost got to where I wanted to be.